You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Welcome back to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he went to church incognito, and when everybody rose, the Reverend Snippy recognized him and punched him in the nose. It's Mr. Jeff McLodge Huge. I have been known to cause a fracas in the house of Jesus. No more, Mr. Lodge Huge. <laughs> uh, how you doing this week, man? I am zippy. <laughs> oh, good. I'm yeah. I'm fine. I'm uh, I'm I'm in a good mood. Ah, me too. Finally, <laughs> one of the fun things that I've found myself following around, uh, you know, on the internet yeah. th- this week was like old weird ass TV shows that s- some of them didn't last long. Some of them lasted for a while, but being able to go back and find like stuff archived that I haven't seen in thirty years, maybe. Right, right, yeah. And it started with me going and spending some time researching Squiggy and the Squig Tones. Oh, Lenny and the Squig Tones, Lenny yeah. and the Squig Tones, right? And I'm like, yep. oh my god, I forgot all about that. And and watching clips from Laverne and Shirley and like Joni Loves Chachi and all these weird other older things that going back and back into TV history. And, yep. you know, getting out of the United States too and seeing some old goofy Japanese stuff that I used to watch when I was a little kid. And it's been really fun to see how entertainment has changed so much in the last, I don't know, 40 years or so. Oh, yeah. When you get on like uh, Facebook and I've, I've been making this, uh, this not argument, but this kind of like stance, you know, the, the boomers and the Generation X, like right now, just like clamoring to, and holding on to whatever they can. Right. Because, you know, th- th- we're all coming to the, the horrific realization of our own mortality right. and the fact that we don't run the show anymore. Right. You know, right. and we definitely don't run the entertainment show anymore. And no, that's, that's totally true. And that's fine because whenever I was 14 to 24 years old, whenever I was in the market audience, I wouldn't want to see something that a bunch of, you know, 40 through 70 year olds would want to watch. We're, we're, I yeah, we're, we're all tuning into during the week. Yeah, it brings me yeah. back to uh, to thinking about my dad who just couldn't understand the young ones and hated it. Thought right. it would break the TV if I was going to watch, if I was watching it because it's so dumb. Right. And now, like, imagine our parents, you know, being interested in the very least with MTV's The Real World. Right. You know? Right. No, no. I can like, totally. What the hell? Right. Exactly. How can you watch this? Like, that's, I used to hear that so much. How right. can you watch this? And and know, now, man. you know, you get people in our generation talking about the demographic television programs these days. Like, I don't get it. It's like, do you understand? Do you listen to yourself? Do you hear right. how horrible and old you sound? <laughs> I have to, like, restrain myself sometimes because, like, things that I just do not understand the appeal of are super popular, like the masked singer. I don't get it. Uh-huh. Like the mass dancers, another one. I believe, I see clips on it, and I'm like, I don't know what this is. 
I watched the first season of The Masked Singer, and it was kind of fun. What's that singer there? I, I don't really know a lot of her stuff, but I've, I, what I've heard, it's like, uh, was it Billy English, right? Oh, yeah, Billy Eilish, yeah. Eilish, is that it? Yeah, I super popular, it. yeah. And, and, and like, do I like it? Yeah, not particularly, but you know what? I love the fact that I don't really like it. Right. I love that because I don't want my generation to just, like, stick the flag in the ground and not move. you got to get out of the way, guys. You definitely do have to get out of the way. And looking back at, like, what sort of things were popular when I was little versus sort of what's popular on entertainment is is just like that idea of not planting your flag in the ground. So I've got a teenage daughter, so my house is filled with the sounds of Phoebe Bridgers right now. Okay. Who is my daughter's favorite singer in the whole world. Sure. She was on Saturday Night Live not too long ago, Phoebe Bridgers. She was, yep. she like, bashed up guitar. And – I watched it with her, and I was so happy that she was so happy to sit and enjoy this performance, and I did not get it at all. <laughs> at all. I just looked at her. I'm like, I don't know what you see in this, Meg. Yeah. But And she's like, but it's great. And yeah. I'm like, it, it is, but I, it's not for me. But that's the important thing. You have right. to sit there and say, I don't get this, and that's right. freaking awesome. And, it's, and that's right. I know she comes to that music through a pathway that I sort of led through the music that I listen to, which I like. Don't bellyache. It's nope. <laughs> right. I it's, don't go. I don't ever fun. complain about that stuff. So, all right. So, speaking of old timey music, uh, this is you know right. This is the generation before ours. I feel like I should uh, put a bowler hat on if you're going to ask me old timey questions. <laughs> and a big handlebar mustache. A big handlebar mustache. Or a top I'll, hat I'll, I'll, cause a sensation in town. <laughs> I'll do everything with the transatlantic accent. All right, listen here, everybody. Here's our trivia question. <laughs> Say, buddy. So, the Beatles, immensely popular band. Beatles have been covered many, many, many times. Many artists have yes. covered Beatles songs. As a matter of fact, the most covered song of all time is the Beatles' Yesterday. Oh. However, anyone that has ever co- covered the Beatles has never had more success than the Beatles. In no time in history has a song that was a Beatles song been covered, did better on the charts than the Beatles song. Okay. It only happened once. So let me just clarify you what yep. you're asking. The Beatles released a song and it charted at a certain number. Yes. Someone else covered that song later and it charted higher. Yes. And that's only happened one time. Only once. And I guarantee you it wasn't on that terrible Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band soundtrack album. So that's going to eliminate at least seven songs. You will not speak ill of the 1978 <laughs> classic oh, yeah. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Do you know, did you know that the song I Want You on that soundtrack, that one of the singers on that is Donald Pleasance from Halloween? Yeah. I am just finding out about that now. (laughs) Well, we can eliminate that from the list, I'm sure. You would think. Yes. All right. Yeah. I don't think any of those songs actually charted. But anyway, yes. What song, what Beatles cover charted higher than the Beatles original? All right. Well, I'm going to guess now, and then we'll talk about it at the end of the show, because I'm pretty sure I'm right. But I'm going to go with. My certainly my favorite Beatles cover. So, and I'm pretty sure it charted higher was uh, "Come Together" as recorded by Aerosmith. You son of a bitch! That's on the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band motion picture soundtrack. <laughs> I'm full of surprises, Bill. How dare you! All right. At any rate, yep, uh, that's my question, and you will get the answer later. All right. Not now, but later. Okay. So this is the week beginning. 
May the 17th. And whose turn is it? I think it's your turn. Your turn. Oh, all right. Your turn to start. All right, you start. All right. May 17th, 1915, Chicago Cubs pitcher George Zip Zabel, the reliever, is brought into the game two outs into the first inning. This doesn't sound wow. exciting. Yes. <laughs> wait, hold on. Wait, what was wrong with the first? The first pitcher is like two outs. I'm done, guys. Woof. I'm beat. <laughs> My arm is tired. I, I threw six pitches. Yeah. I threw six, six hundred and twenty mile an hour pitches. <laughs> I threw my arm just completely off the shoulder. So the first guy he, throws yep. two innings. He throws no. two outs. Two outs. First inning. Yeah. <laughs> he throws. He throws the two bat. Well, he may throw have thrown to more than two batters, but he threw two outs. Okay. Right. And so I don't know. The relief pitcher. They bring in the relief pitcher. He pitches for the next nineteen innings. <laughs> They end up with a 4-3 win, but it takes 19 innings to get there. It's the longest relief session for any pitcher in any league uh, since baseball records started. <laughs> that that guy's arm must have – it needed its own statue of awesome armness by the end of that game. 19 uh, innings. Now, I got a couple of, I got a couple of uh, questions. Uh, first of all, I want to throw this joke out in there. His arm must have looked like – a teenage boy's arm coming back from summer camp. <laughs> yep. And uh, the, sec- the second week back coming home from summer camp. Now, why didn't they just bring the other guy back in? You can't bring the pitcher back in that you've relieved. That's against the rules. Oh, wow. Um, and they may not have had a bench that was deep enough to bring anybody in. And there's a lot of, like, weird superstition in baseball. So I, I didn't research this, but imagine, if you will, the first pitcher, he pitches to, say... Five batters. Three of those batters score, and he puts two of them out. Yep. So they're 3-0, and the three batters that score, they all score in a row. So the coach gets freaked out, brings in the reliever to try and get out of the inning, strikes out the next guy to get out of the inning, and they're able to tie up the game in the beginning of inning number two. And they stay at 3-3 for 18 more innings, 17 (laughs) more innings. So you don't want to change anything that might tilt the balance. And like I said, there's a lot of superstition in baseball. So they're like, just leave Mr. Zip out there. <laughs> Zips out on the on the mound. You motherfuckers. Right. Take me out, coach. Take me out. <laughs> you know, start throwing with his legs. But I love, I love these weird baseball ones because it's such a weird and archaic and strange sport sometimes yep. that the trivia that we get around them is always really fun and interesting. So here's something really fun and interesting. <laughs> Uh, you brought up uh, going down the television rabbit hole at the beginning of the show. May the 18th, 1972, a television show called Me and the Chimp uh, makes its debut. Uh, it was produced by Gary Marshall and Thomas Milner, the guys who went on to produce uh, Happy Days yeah. and Laverne and Shirley and stuff. Yeah, like all the best sitcoms of the 70s. Yeah. Right. Yes, but this they, is not one of those. Uh, yeah, they, I guess they started out <laughs> slow, yeah. So this and, is me um, and the chip. This is like, I'm going to guess it stars a guy named me and a chimp. <laughs> yep. And the guy, his name in the show is Mike Reynolds, was played by an actor named Ted Bessel, who was the boyfriend of Marlo Thomas on That Girl. Okay. Um, yeah. And, and he, he walked off the show during filming when they said the name of the show was going to be The Chimp and I. <laughs> he was going to get sick. Second banana billing, find a chimpanzee. I am so glad you made that joke. Second, Second banana. banana billing. <laughs> <laughs> he came back when they agreed to change it to me and the chimp, which in and of itself is a 
terrible title for a TV show. Not the worst I've heard. No. <laughs> well, what's the what's the worst that you've heard? Well, uh, I was. <laughs> I'm now I'm laughing at this because I'm surprised this made it past any board of of supervisors anywhere. Uh, there was a, a a British sitcom, and this is is this is going to be its own segment eventually because this this is too absurd to not mention. But there was a sitcom in England, right? A Britcom. Uh, it lasted. They filmed eight episodes. One aired because it got yanked instantly. It was get this, dude. It was called. Hile Honey, I'm Home. And it was, yes. And it was a, it was like a sitcom of like Adolf Hitler and Eva Braun. Like, no, that's not a real like, thing, is it? As, you know, it was though, right? And it's like, it's like a, par- it's like a parody of an American uh-huh. sitcom with a, you know, just a good old American family, you know, like, uh, like growing pains <laughs> there with the cleavers or whatever. And uh, the Seavers. But only thing that happened to be Hitler, it's like, who the hell on God's green earth was like, I got this idea, and then, like, nobody was like, hey, Gary, no. <laughs> this is a terrible idea, right? Oh, my gosh, that's, Heil, honey, I'm home. Uh, uh, yeah, hold on, Gary. Uh, Gary, now, now, Heil, honey, I'm home does not break the record for quickest television cancellation. They They made a cartoon television series out of Clerks. You remember that? Yes. Yeah, that lasted two shows before it got yanked. That was over here in America. But this is earlier in the year. This is like in February. February of 1969, there was a sketch comedy show with Tim Conway, of all people, called The Turn On. It got canceled 15 minutes into the show. (laughs) They went to commercial and they came back and they're like, we will not be showing the rest of this program. (laughs) Not tonight. Nor ever. And you literally can't find episodes of it anywhere. Wow. Because, I'll have to. Yeah. There's got to be somebody's got no, something somewhere. No, there isn't. Somewhere. I went looking, dude. All I could find was documentaries about it with some clips. Wow. There was like part of the contract was it would never be aired. Like the only way you can watch it is like some museum has them on a loop. <laughs> and even then they only have like two episodes. Yeah. All Let's right. get on to the 19th. Uh, May 19th, 1928, inspired by Mark Twain, uh, the first annual frog jumping jubilee in Angels Camp, California takes place. It features 51 frogs, or as we now That's an know. an army of frogs. An army of frogs, right? right probably a battalion of frogs, I think, at 51. But... <laughs> the first frog battalion. And it's this particular event is still going on. Well, it's not the first one that's still going on, but it's been done every year since 1928 up through and including future years. So did they do it last year? Did they have to put little masks on the frogs and stuff? Yeah. (laughs) Yes, they did. Little masks on the frog and everybody had to stay far far away from one another. And they still, it's still tied to, to uh, Mark Twain to show the legacy that Mark Twain's writing has. That's what, and I'm not super familiar with his short stories. That was his first published story. Right. Okay. I, I know that the story was called the the Amazing Jumping Frog of Calaveras County, but I don't remember ever reading yeah. it. Yeah, I don't think I've read it either, uh, to tell you the truth. But I know that's his first published story. My father had, and now my brother has it, all of Mark Twain's published novels. Not so much the story, stories, wow. but yeah, in hardcover. Yeah. Oh, wow. So yeah, but my father was a big Mark Twain fan. Uh, it goes a, It goes a little too deep for me, but I had to stick a frog pun in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, 
what's next, Bill? All right. Let's hop on over uh, yeah. to May 20th. Yeah. How's that? Uh, yeah. Before, before we croak, right. <laughs> oh. mm. uh, rivet. <laughs> so, uh, speaking of frogs, or cats, for that matter, on May the 20th, in the year in the year of our Lord, 1980, uh, the worst business decision ever made... <laughs> Your friend and mine, Peter Chris, drummer from the rock band Kiss, decides that he's going to leave the band and go out on a solo career. Uh, he's trying to get that sweet, sweet Rod Stewart money. Yep, and this didn't work out good for anybody. <laughs> yep, Kiss's first album came out in like 1974. And then after that, they put out Hotter Than Hell, Just to Kill, Alive, Destroyer, Rock and Roll Over, Love Gun, Alive 2. They each put out solo albums. Then there was Dynasty and Unmasked. Okay? Right. All those albums, I and not to mention the double platinum release, but that was just the greatest hits. Now, everything I just said, all those albums, came out in a span of six years. Ton of records. Not even, well, six, six or seven years. That's a lot of music to be recording. And they toured constantly, you know? Around 75, 76, uh, they had their big, hitch, huge single, Beth, which Peter Chris uh, sang vocals on and has a writing credit on, which yep. if, if you read the biographies, he had slightly more to do with the writing of that song than I do. <laughs> Just slightly. So Peter Chris decided he was going to go out on his big solo career and, you know, with the success of Beth and Hard Luck Woman... Behind him, he thought he was going to have a massive solo career, and that wasn't wasn't really so much the case. Yeah, it's funny because like he does he does have the kind of voice that lends itself to the audience for like the Rod Stewart fan. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's right? got that gravelly he, voice. It, yeah, and the gravelly voice and the song. If he had hooked up with a good songwriter and a decent backing band, he could have. He probably could have done right. it. But I I wonder if it's like every other drummer's album that comes out, like. Keith Moon's album. Stop singing. You're not. He Keith Moon loved to sing, and we'll talk about this more later, I'm sure. But he loved to sing. But they actually used to like let him sing in the booth, and then just like erase his track. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but back to Peter Chris. The, the, his first album was called Out of Control, which was kind of like a double entendre there. Out of control, like woohoo! I'm out of control. But he was also saying he was out of the control of Paul and Gene. You know. Out of the good business decisions of Gene and out of control of management. And the, and, the, and the great songwriting <laughs> of Paul, and... right. Because Paul wrote Hard Luck Woman. Actually, he wrote Hard Luck Woman yes. for, wrote for Rod, for Rod Stewart. Stewart. But Peter Chris ended up uh, recording it. And that's a great song. Can't argue. That's one of my, it's one of my favorites for, for sure. The Peter Chris solo albums that he did outside of Kiss, if not all of them, most of them are available on Spotify. And I went back and I listened to them. They're okay. You know what I mean? They're, they're not horrible albums. It's just, if you're a KISS fan, that's not really what you want to listen to. And right. if you're not a KISS fan, it's not the kind of music you're going to seek out. Right. But it's not Right, and it's not 80, horrible. 80 was, if, if it had happened maybe four years earlier in the 70s when when that sort of style, like Harlock Woman, was way more popular, yeah. I could see him landing it. Right. But 80 was like transition period. It's disco. It's the beginning of New Wave. There's all right. this Right, yeah. The, the rocket of MTV was just about to launch, right. right? Right. And then you've got like the equivalent of like, it's not soft rock, but it's kind of close to it. Right. 
it just didn't have an audience anymore. Yeah, so yeah, it's a shame. Yeah, it was. Yeah, times are definitely changing in music for that time. It it was a it was a bad decision made worse by a bad time, you know. Yep. But Kiss got back together sixteen years later, and with a very successful tour, and good for them. We've established many times on the show, Kiss is one of my all time favorite bands. I will make fun of Peter Chris leaving Kiss until the day I die. <laughs> And you should. And as, as well I should. Yep. Uh, May 21st, 1812. Huh? Uh-huh. Going all the way back now. Uh, the very first bicycle, known as the Swift Walker, appears in New York City. The evolution of the bicycle uh, <laughs> starts with and ends sort of with two wheels, right? By, that's the by part of the bicycle. Right. But if you, you want to see the equivalent of the Swift Walker today, go find a toddler bike. With no pedals, because that's what it was. Yeah, take the, yeah, take the pedals and chain off of like my bicycle, lower the seat a little bit. You would just like straddle this thing, and then just like you just said, like a toddler bicycle, <laughs> so just sort of like yeah, like squat walk. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and like, roll. like kick your legs along. It's like this is barely better than walking, is what it is. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, eighteen twelve is before there's like good padding or springs or yeah. rubber or oh, anything exactly. else so right it must have been just communicating every single bump rock cobblestone curb and anything else directly into your spine you know, the, the, the guys of the of the day would be like you know i feel like going out for a walk but walking doesn't give me the saddle sores <laughs> i've been looking forward to receiving i went for a walk on my new swift walker through central park and now i'm completely paralyzed from the neck down <laughs> going downhill in those things must have been like but I mean, yeah, no brakes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but also, I mean, just just think about all the technology advances that have come in the last, you know, that's two hundred years ago now, right? Two hundred plus, and think about all the technological advances, especially like in balance and accuracy and stuff like that. So just imagine like going down a pretty stiff hill on one of these walkers and just like wobbling out of control. <laughs> <laughs> Now picture a guy dressed sort of like a Revolutionary War soldier. Since this was 1812, you're most likely going to see a guy in like a tricorn hat because they didn't have helmets and tails on a coat, like a waistcoat, like, please get out of the way. And just (whistles) down the hill he goes. Yeah, just hitting like one small rock and going flipping ass over teacups. Just boom. Must have been funny for anybody who saw that. though. Getting up, brushing himself off and harumphing. Just like, <laughs> I meant to do that. <laughs> oh, look, Mr. Knievel's at it again. <laughs> the the evolution of bicycles, like, it took so long before you get to, like, what we have now. Yes. Because, like, the next step after those, eight, eight, you know, 1812 was those, I don't know what they called, but they have the enormous front tire and then the little right. little back tires. That's where the name bicycle comes from, is for those. Uh-huh. They're also called penny-farthing bicycles. They were known as the first true bicycles or sport bicycles. Yep. I've seen videos of people who still ride them today. I've seen them in person. I've seen people, yeah, they had like people riding them around uh, like Faneuil Hall area in Boston. I can't imagine how you can even steal one of those things, but. It's a lot of leaning, I would think. I mean, people ask me all that all the time about the unicycle. You know, how do you steer that? It's like, well, you learn. Now, the learning curve of me riding the unicycle, it, it took me like, I think like 15 hours before I was actually bad at it, right? I'm going to guess. I don't know, but I'm going to guess that the unicycle was invented before the bicycle. I mean, just think about, like, the guy goes, I got this idea, and then he tries it, and, like, I would have said, this, and not, you know, it's just going to work. 
<laughs> okay, I think I know what this is missing. Yeah, the, the rest of the wheels, yeah, the yeah, other yeah. wheel. This, yeah. this needs at least another wheel. <laughs> that has to be twice as dangerous as it is now, with some sort of frame holding them together. This has to be swift is what it needs. And then after that was the bicycles that we sort of know of today with the two same size wheels and the chain drive for the back. And the balance. And a, and a, <laughs> a, a brake. A coaster brake or, or handbrake. So those were called safety bicycles when they were first released because they were safe for women to ride. That was the advertisement, those type of bicycles. So the big, tall, one-wheeled sport bikes were for dudes and safety bicycles were for the ladies. Right, and the ladies actually had the pants, skirt kind of thing that was called pedal pushers. That was made for riding the, those safety bicycles. Yeah. Exactly. Clearly, that was the best design of the bicycle because that's the design that we still have today. You know what this thing needs? A method of stopping. I must come up with some way other than Fred Flintstoning my way down the hill. Or jumping off at top speed and praying for the best. <laughs> I arrived, but I was in pieces. I scraped my mustache on the ground. So, uh, on May the 22nd, 1933, the first modern <laughs> sighting of our good friend Nessie, the Loch Ness Monster. Yeah. So what you're saying is some people misidentified a log in the Loch Ness as a monster in 1933. Is that what you're telling me? Uh, what I'm saying is there, there had been prior sightings of a monster in the Loch Ness, but hadn't been seen in a very long time. And what we now know as Nessie is was first spotted in 1933. It was a, a couple and they saw something that they said... Kind of look like a whale. Kind of look like a whale. Yep. Angus, have you ever seen a whale before? <laughs> no. <laughs> look, it's the Loch Ness monster. Yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah. Just think about think about this argument. This <laughs> this horrifically large leap that the people have made, and they're like, "Hey, right. I think I just saw a whale out on the lock." It's like it's impossible to see a whale under the lock. It's a lock. It's not connected to the ocean. Why would there be a whale there? Have you gone mad? It's like, well, it must be a sea serpent then. Right, right. It must be some sort of long-lost dinosaur monster. It must be something logically impossible if it isn't a whale. So it was like only a year later, right, when we get the, the famous dentist photo that turned out to be a monster head stuck on a submarine toy. That's exactly most of what happened. Uh, our friend there, the his, his name was Surgeon. He must have been down the pub. And then, you know, the guy comes in and he's like, I, I can't really do a Scottish accent. But it comes in and be like, I just seen a, a, a serpent at the lock. And the de the surgeon guy must have been like, oh, I have a submarine toy at home. I've got an idea and a submarine toy at home. There's a sucker born every minute. Right, exactly. Well, I'll just, I'll have to keep the secret till I'm on my deathbed. Yep. You know, I watched an episode of Forensic Files not too long ago where this guy had like killed his lover, like hit her body in a, in a barrel and like he couldn't dispose of the barrel so he just had it like in the crawl space of his house and then he like sold the house but left left the barrel there and like <laughs> and like two or three people bought and sold the house and the barrel was just there they're just like all right whatever barrel when they finally opened up the barrel and they found the body inside they tracked down the guy and they're like uh hey you left something at that house you sold yeah we gotta talk to you and then he ended up like taking himself out of the game the very next day this guy must have been like sweating his entire life like i'm gonna get caught I'm it's i knew i left something back there right that shoe's gonna drop any day now and that's how that surgeon guy the guy that took the picture of the submarine like locked this monster that must have been like his whole life like somebody's gonna come and get me someone's gonna <laughs> say we saw you with the freaking submarine with the puppet 
tied to it. I'm sure he was laughing each year as he didn't get caught. Oh, yeah. And every time there would be like a new Loch Ness Monster TV show that would show up on television, and it would be like, the definitive proof. He's like, that's my photo. That's a submarine. <laughs> Yeah, if that you know, was imagine me, that like subtitled in Scottish, yeah. but yes, that would have been me on my deathbed. It's like I, I have something I have to say. <laughs> a bunch of idiots. <laughs> <laughs> if you just reach under the bed, and then, yeah, and they're like, "Well, I've been hornswoggled." <laughs> What's curious about, and we talk about cryptozoology like a lot on the show because it's great. Yes. What's so hilarious about it to me is this guy came forward and said, "I made this whole." thing up and people are still like yep no i believe it (laughs) but your photo you took that photo like it was a submarine with a clay thing on top of it no it's not like i i actually just recently listened to this like a podcast documentary talking about the very first seance and it was conducted by these like three teenage sisters and one of them could click her ankle by moving it a certain way and that's how they made like the tapping sounds of the ghosts like clicking her ankle and like 50 years after and all these people are having their own seances and making their own conclusions stuff like that but like 50 years after these girls are like yeah we made the whole thing up that never happened and people are still doing seances and and that kind of like shit to this day it's like no a teenage girl could click her ankle that's how all this started it goes to show you the power of money Right, because there's money involved in this. And people are willing to, like, if they want to believe something, they're willing to just ignore all evidence to the contrary. Oh, right. And there are other people who are like, hey, man, I can just continue to peddle this and make money from people who are clearly not, never going to believe that this isn't a thing. I guess that's how the world works, but. All right, anyway, moving on. Speaking of delusions, the delusion of May 23rd. Yep. 1969. Didn't happen. Uh, two people walking along the side of Loch Ness look out and they spot Pete Townsend releasing the rock opera Tommy. Ah, one of my favorite albums of all time. It is definitely one that has been at the top of my list for the better part of 40 years now. Still sounds fresh and good. It's one of those really weird, groundbreaking, like it shifts the musical landscape record type yep. records, you know? It's the great-great-grandfather of prog rock. It's like the first date of the two things that would go on to have the grandkids that would make prog rock. It's like, right. that's kind of this record. Now, you said in, uh, in the intro for this segment, you said Pete Townsend, but let's, you know, let's be clear. Let's be it clear, is yes. a Who, yeah, it is a it's Who a, album. It's the Who record, yeah, the Who's rock opera. Right. Tommy is one, I there's one thing I wish that they could or should or would do or whatever some people may find it sacrilege but i kind of wish they would go back and remix it because the way it was recorded pete townsend felt that the lyrics of the album were very important and it was very important that you could understand all the words so all the instrumentation is very low in the mix compared to the vocals right i wish they would remix it to make it sound like a regular rock album you know because that way the drums would be hitting you know because i mean the who were uh especially for their time a a hard-hitting heavy band so i wish it sounded sonically a little bit more like quadrophenia but yeah other than that i think yeah i think tommy is one of those like just perfect albums it's it's true too and you know you bring up a good point like with the way that it's mixed you can go and watch clips of like them doing segments of tommy at woodstock and at other venues live at leeds and stuff when they play it live it the songs that they play from tommy live are incredibly heavy compared to the studio versions because they're that mixing isn't isn't an issue that vocals can get submerged a little bit in the heavy guitar and the super fast and ornate bass playing and the crazy drums from Keith Moon and it, it gives the music another like layer of punch 
to make it enjoyable. I think if you're going to know one song off this album, you're going to know Pinball Wizard. And whenever uh, they brought it to the record company, you know, the executive was like, I don't hear a single. So, you know, Townsend had this narrative about a deaf, dumb, and blind boy who could feel the vibrations of the music. And it was the music that, you know, gave him his, uh, his senses. That was supposed to be the narrative of the album. Right. And they were like, yep, I don't hear a single. So he just threw in this Pinball Wizard song and, you know, changed the, the narrative of the album to... He could basically see himself in the reflection of the ball while he was playing pinball, and that was his gateway to the outside world. Pinball Wizard ended up being the, the like one of the Who's most famous songs, but it was just like a last-minute throw-in. Part of the story that I heard are that he, he, he says, like, and he knew that the guy at the record company was, was like a pinball nerd. Oh, really? So he specifically wrote that song, like, to appease that guy. <laughs> Ass kisser. So knowing that he would be like, wow, and that would that would be enough for them to get the money they needed to, to finish the record or put the record out. What's your favorite song on the album? My favorite song on the album is Sally Simpson. That is my second favorite song on the album. I think Sally Simpson is a perfect song. You want to see a fist fight breakout? Uh, this guy, that the, he was a guitar player in my, uh, my first band. He loves Paul McCartney. You know, and he thinks Paul McCartney is the greatest songwriter of all time. I think Pete Townsend is the greatest songwriter of all time. You, you and me both. Us arguing back and forth on who the songwriter is. And Sally Simpson is one that I bring up. It tells such a complex story. And there's this perfect rhythm and rhyme scheme to the lyrics. Right. But it still tells this amazingly complex narrative. You know, without ever losing a beat or ever... Throwing in a, you know, a forced rhyme. It's the one time in the album where you're outside of Tommy's story. Yes. And you're just seeing the impact of his character. Right. That's super duper rare, even in literature, to be able to do that. What it does is it, it ties together the overall narrative of Tommy's his, his life story as written into the songs. Yep. By being able to like be that one person who steps outside, the impact of his fame and whatever is both positive and negative. Takes the entire idea that... Townsend is trying to put together in the first half of the record and gets it out in one short three and a half minute song. My favorite song on the album is Go to the Mirror. You know, it has the, the listening to you refrain in the middle of the song. Whenever we did, I brought up that we did Tommy a couple of weeks ago. Whenever I was in a production of Tommy, whenever I went down to auditions, I checked off every box that was, you know, a male character with the exception of Tommy because I did not want to play the lead and I did not check off the doctor because Go to the Mirror is like vocal Olympics and there's no way I would be able to handle that song. Uh, on a side note, the two people that did sing did not harmonize well with each other and it sounded like a car horn. <laughs> <laughs> so at least that wasn't on me. But actually because I, I ended up playing uh, Captain Walker... I had to sing a little bit of that song anyway. All right, so moving on to Celebrity Birthdays. May the 17th, 1956, American comedian and sitcom actor and host of America's Funniest Home Videos, Bob Saget. Oh, hey, all right. Now, what's very interesting about Bob Saget, he was the father on Full House, and he was just like, you know, like the every dad. He was a, a, a perfect sitcom dad. As America's Funniest Home Videos, he was he's likable. You know, he's uh, he's someone you feel you connect to. Have you ever seen that man do stand-up comedy? I I haven't. That man is filthy. <laughs> he is one of the most, like, like, filth and bombastic comedians. One, he's super, he talks super fast. So, like, the jokes will go right by you and you'll be like, wait a minute, what did he just say? Like, the one that sticks out in my mind was, um, 
He was bagging on his mother something fierce. And then he goes, no, I'm only kidding. I love my mother. And you can too for just $12. <laughs> yeah, he's out of control. All right, next up. May 18th, 1838. Seth Wheeler, a name that should be a little bit more well-known than it is, known for being the inventor of perforated toilet paper. Oh, full of sh- Ah, he was. And I'm sure it was after one of those days where, you know, you're kind of in a hurry and you're like, when all of a sudden the whole roll is like spooling out on (laughs) and you can never get it rolled back up the right way. You know, it just needs perforation. Prior to that, they had like the one continuous roll and then... It's like butcher paper. Yeah, oh, or worse yet, like those old, like, hand dryer things, which was just like a like a loop. Oh, yeah, no, you well, definitely want to be the first person ever. <laughs> well, we thank you, Seth Wheeler, for, for the four inches of square that you think I need. All right, rolling on uh, to May the 19th, 1951, a man by the name of Jeff Ross Hyman, who the world would know better as rock and roll icon Joey Ramone. Nice. I was an enormous Kiss fan growing up, and then Peter Chris left the, the band and we kind of needed something else to do. The Ramones was one of the first bands that I liked in my post-Kiss life. Nice. I remember the very first time I heard them was on an album called Rock That is exactly where I heard them for the first time. Yep. yep. First song on side two, Rock. Do you remember Rock yep. and Roll Radio? Rock and Roll Radio, yep. I loved it. Interestingly enough, Kiss does a cover of it that's magnificent. Oh, I'll have to dig that yeah, up. Peter, that sounds Peter like Chris a good, is an a good time. Um, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, they didn't get along, and um, uh, the Ramones always had like a, uh, a rotating cast of drummers. Much like Kiss. Yeah, not unlike Kiss, yep. If you ever get the chance to see the documentary End of the Century, I recommend it. It's a good watch. That's definitely a good one. One thing that Joey Ramone really loved was being a Ramone. He loved being in that band. He died just shy of his 50th birthday. He died from cancer. He was not well. I remember seeing one show. It was at Rocky Point Park. Like, the roadies, like, basically carried Joey Ramone on stage. Like, drunken Jesus. You know what I mean? Like a drunken sailor. Placed him at the mic stand. Joey stood at the mic stand, did the whole show, and then basically was carried off the stage. Yeah, I've seen clips of... He of, was not uh, well. At, the last like yeah. the last tour that he was on, and it was like that. And I saw them carrying him down the steps from the stage to the backstage, and I was like, he looks really sick. And yeah. he, he died not long after that. Yeah, and he was very, very tall and gangly. Yeah, he it was like I remember seeing them live one time, and he was so tall and skinny. It was like, how does this guy's legs hold him up? It looked like Disney's Robin Hood. <laughs> All right, let's get on to the twentieth, May twentieth, nineteen forty-four. May twentieth, nineteen forty-four. Uh, English rock vocalist Joe Cocker, known more than anything else for doing a Beatles cover for with a little help from my friends is born in Sheffield, England. I don't know. I, I know I said before that my favorite Beatles cover was "Come Together," and this this is. One of the rare instances where a song, his version of this song transcends the quality of the original. And the original is a great song. Sure. But he just takes it to a whole nother universe of awesomeness. It's weird because Joe Cocker's got such an unusual voice. My favorite performance from him is You Are So Beautiful. Yep. Uh, just because, well, one, it was on The Muppet Show and it was great. But, I mean, the Muppet sang it, but the song. But uh, but Joe Cocker's performance of it is because Joe Cocker is not what you would consider... A handsome man. He's an an unusual looking fellow. Yeah. Yes, and he had such a like weird 
stage performance like he would just like throw his arms around and lean backwards and stuff I mean John Belushi did an absolute flawless impersonation of him like it was it was just weird for him to watch he wasn't a good looking man and he had this like a very it, it wasn't a soothing sounding voice it was kind of no kind of gravelly kind of yelly kind yep. of and all that and just that whole juxtaposition to the this is me being emotional for a second here the sweetness <laughs> of the lyrics of you are so beautiful that that whole juxtaposition is fantastic i think next up bringing the mohawk back into fashion may 21st 1952 a man simply known as mr t the bouncer turned movie star turned tv star turned uh, uh, turned professional wrestler Turned professional wrestler. Turned part-time spokesperson for uh, the Just Say No campaign of Nancy Reagan. And animated cartoon. Uh, And breakfast cereal. He was a household name. He was everything. Yeah. Um, He was like Kiss. (laughs) He's like the Kiss of people. He's he's every product. My friend, who we just simply call him T. I know him from the cosplay uh, circuit. He cosplays as Mr. T. And, yep. and he's awesome. Everybody loves that guy. He's the nicest guy you'll ever get a, get a chance to I got, chance I got to pictures with him with me and the kids dressed as Captain Marvel, yeah. Oh, it's yeah. So you met him. Yeah, he's awesome. Now, legendarily in the world of professional wrestling, Roddy Piper hated Mr. T. You know, we've told this story before. Hated working with Mr. T because Mr. T wasn't part of the business, right? Right. So one of Roddy Piper's last appearances before he passed away, I was lucky enough to get to see this. My friend T goes walking over to get his picture taken with Roddy Piper. Roddy Piper sees him and just busts out laughing. And <laughs> he was so happy to see him. There's a great picture of like of Roddy Piper holding T in a headlock. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Mr. T, shaving the sides of his head and pitying fools. All right, moving on. May 22nd, 1823, Solomon Bundy. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Uh, no, well, he's just he's just like a guy who was a politician. He was a representative from New York. Oh, okay. <laughs> In 1823, when I was doing the research for this week's show, and I read that, in the back of my head, I heard the friggin' Super Battle Man. of the Super Friends. Yeah. Solomon Grundy! <laughs> and I couldn't stop laughing. Solomon and Bundy. It just, Solomon Bundy. And it kept making me laugh and laugh and laugh. That's why he is our May 22nd celebrity birthday. You know, he, Solomon Bundy! You know, Mr. T obviously changed his name. He wasn't born Mr. If you got a name like Solomon Bundy, you might want to just, I don't know, change the spelling. I'll call me Saul. Get yourself a nickname like Mitt Romney did, you know. There's certain people out there that it's like, dude, do something. Like the race car driver, his name was Dick Trickle. Come on! (laughs) Yeah, we had uh, up here, we had a representative named Dick Sweat. (laughs) There was a guy out in, I think he's still active too, out in Nebraska. His name is Ben Sass. Still, still out there. Every time you hear him, they're like, Ben Sass is in an awkward position. <laughs> ben Sass. Well, Ben Sass and Dick Sweat were working together on a bill. I was like, oh, I saw Ben Sass and Dick Sweat in the gym. <laughs> Yo, you know what's awful is uh, the, the wrestler Ricky Steamboat, right? Yes. His real name is Rick, uh, you know, Ricky, his real last name is Blood. What a badass name that would be for a wrestler. Until you realize his name is Dick Blood. No, thank you. <laughs> I'm not wrestling that guy. <laughs> All right, and wrapping up the birthdays on uh, on May the 23rd of 1910, a man by the name of Scatman Crothers. He was a, you know American actor. He was on uh, Chico and the Man. He played the Garbage Man. Most people know him as Halloran from The Shining. 
uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, which actually came out on May 23rd in 1980. So Scatman Crothers' 70th birthday was spent seeing himself on the getting axed in the checks in the test <laughs> by uh, by Jack Nicholson. Uh, also, Scatman Crothers did the voice for Hong Kong Fooey. Remember that cartoon? Yeah, that's a terrible cartoon to go back and watch now. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, Let's see, cram as many stereotypes as we possibly can into Saturday morning TV for the children. Yeah, yeah that doesn't age well in the. Uh, no, no, it's not good. It's like Charlie Chan and the Chan Clan is not another. Yeah, good in, the, one. in the in the modern age of enlightenment, right? Yep. Now, now, Scatman Crothers got his nickname because scat is a musical styling with a lot of like, uh, you know, nonsense word and gibberish. Myself personally, I think I think scat singing is really cool. Other people think it's the worst song ever. What do we have? Who's our contender this week? Our contender for worst song ever is a weird ass 1980s combination spoken thing slash Broadway musical style new wavy punk and punk of burn and junka called One Night in Bangkok. Oh, wait a goddamn minute. I like that song. Actually, I like that song too. So what the hell's it doing here? Just because we like it doesn't mean it isn't bad. Right, okay. So it's bad because it's, how do I describe this? It's a Murray, it's Murray Head is the actor, speaks out the majority of the lyrics, right. which are completely forgettable. Everyone remembers the chorus. It's a chorus of Swedish girls. Yeah, that, well, that's the thing. It's like, like people like me will be like, oh, I like that song. One night in Bangkok, makes a hot man right, right. bubble. It's like, right. right. But that's not Murray Head. The worst no, parts no. of that song are the Murray Head parts. Right. Yes, when it sounds like he's he's singing through, uh, an, again, old-timey. Yeah. An old-timey, like, Oh, hey there, I got a taxi cab and I stubbed my toe on the way out of the hotel. I get my kicks above the waistline, sunshine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah terrible. Terrible. No, but, the, yeah, the chorus of it is fine. Let's just play the Murray Head part here. Bangkok, oriental setting in the city, don't know what the city is getting. The creme de la creme of the chess world in a show with everything but Yul Brynner. Time flies, doesn't seem a minute since the Tyrolean spa had the chess bars in it. All change, don't you know that when you play at this level there's no ordinary venue. It's Iceland, or the Philippines, or Hastings, or, or this place. One night in Everybody's going to remember the uh, the good parts of the song. Know what this reminds me of? Later, like a couple of years later, was that song by Rockwell, Somebody's Watching Me. <laughs> yeah, that song sucks. It's him talking and then everyone remembers the, the chorus. Right, which is Michael Jackson. Which the, is Michael Jackson. The king of yeah, pop, was... right. The most popular person in, the, in show business at the time, right. Right. Yeah, the parts with Rockwell. That, when I come home at night, I close the door really tight. Yeah, it's right. like. Yeah, I hate that part. Can we get to the good it's, part? I hate that part. Can we get to Michael Jackson? Just, just cut those parts right out, and it's just the chorus, 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 chorus. They should do that with this song and that song, and just stitch the two choruses together. And then make one piece of sh**. When I come home at night, I get right kicks out the waistline. <laughs> stitch them together, get Rockwell, Murray Head, and then bring in French Schneider from the B-52s. <laughs> To just go, fuck, every once in a while. <laughs> right. My God, if you've never heard the French Snyder solo albums, you are missing out, let me tell you. Stitching those songs together would be like, you know, I like pizza, and I like donuts. <laughs> hey, you know what? No, no would be great, a Boston <laughs> no. cream pizza. Boston cream pizza, a pepperoni and Bavarian cream. <laughs> 
So uh, a, a little piece, a little piece of trivia about One Night in Bangkok. It was from a musical called Chess, and the musical was written by Bjorn and the other guy, because I don't know his name. And even if I did know it, I'm quite sure I couldn't pronounce it. Uh, but the two guys from ABBA, Bjorn and not Bjorn. Yeah, Bjorn and Bjorn again. Bjorn, Bjorn and Bjorn again. Bjorn free, as free as the Bjorn was. Yeah, the two guys from ABBA wrote all the music uh, for that whole musical Chess. So, in a sense, One Night in Bangkok could easily have been an ABBA song. You could hear, like, Frida. Yeah, you definitely can. Yeah. You, you can visualize them them doing it, right? Yeah, but you know what? You can. Now that you bring that up, I can I can almost I, my, I can almost put the voices together. And it would be way better. With, yeah, and, and then bring in French Schneider to do that. Bangkok, Oriental City, what the city don't know, what the city is missing. Also, Murray Head has a brother, Anthony Stewart Head, who was on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. He also played one of my favorite things. Is uh, There was a sketch comedy show called Little Britain. Yes. He played the prime minister. Oh. <laughs> and Murray Head actually can sing because he was in the original stage production of Jesus Christ Superstar, Judas Iscariot. Did he sing all the songs like this? Like, 30 pieces of gold. <laughs> No, I, I think what happened with One Night in Bangkok, they're like, we need you to sing this song. He's like, well, I can't get down there. They're like, well, we'll just put the telephone up to the microphone. Right, exactly, yes. Let's uh, bring the show up to a stunning conclusion. I like it. Uh, with the answer to the trivia question, which, believe it or not, you already said it. Did, did I get it right? Was it, is it Come Together no, by Aerosmith? No, it's not Come Together. It's Maxwell Silver Hammer by Steve oh. Martin. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the Beatles song that was covered and did better than the Beatles' original song was Joe Cocker's version oh. of... Uh, get by with a little help from my friends. And that makes total sense. Yep. Beatles' version did not chart very well. It got as high as 71 or 74. And Joe Cocker's version didn't do a lot better, but it did do better than the Beatles. It got as high as 68, which... I don't understand because that's uh, the Joe Cocker song is iconic. Yeah, it really is. And and the studio version is amazing. And you can go and see the live version that he did at Woodstock, which is that closes out Woodstock, which is just it's mind bendingly great. Yeah, They actually used the Joe Cocker version as the intro uh, theme song to the Wonder Years. Remember that? Yep. Yep. Well, that was pretty close. Yeah. So at least they got that going. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you, get, you got it right. Just not when I asked. <laughs> All right, but that is going to wrap up the show for this week. We will see you right back here again next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. All right. Say good night, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. All right, bye, bye guys. A special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Find us or message us on Facebook and Instagram at Twibbly or T W W W B L Y. Subscribe if you haven't already and tell your friends. They probably need a cool podcast to listen to as well. And if you don't like this week's episode, there'll be one next week, and it'll probably be better. <laughs> <laughs>